What an exciting week. First, I'm going to do a quick recap on the Environmental Epigenetics of Autism Research webinar presented by Mark Zilka of University of North Carolina. Then we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Shen, also from University of North Carolina, first author on a new paper identifying very, very early biological markers of autism risk. And the paper is actually a replication of previous findings, so these things are worth taking seriously. I'm not going to get into too much detail about the webinar because you can hear the whole thing on the ASF podcast. It was posted on Tuesday the 14th. Mark Zilka describes some work from other labs as well as his own lab around gene-environment interactions and autism. He observed that there seem to be different nodes or clusters around which genes in the environment interact. They are, in no particular order, neuroinflammation, genes that control for early development, specifically how the tips of brain cells touch each other and how brain cells communicate, also something called the WNT pathway, epigenetics, and sodium channels. When sodium channels are open, the cells turn on and release neurotransmitter. When they're closed, they turn off. Different pesticides affect this process just temporarily, but pair it with the right time in development, it could have long-lasting consequences. He took these observations a step further and used mouse cortical neurons to replicate what happens in the brain, and he looked at gene transcription and the presence and absence of different environmental factors. And guess what? The genes that were upregulated or downregulated had to do with neuroinflammation, early brain development, and epigenetics. So this is a confirmation of a convergence of genetic and environmental factors that increase risk for autism. He also made an interesting observation that genes that were longer in length, so longer genes, seem to be more vulnerable to environmental factors as well. This needs further attention. In addition to Dr. Zilk, we got to hear from Dr. Valerie Hu at George Washington University, who described her work with Aurora, a gene associated with autism that is also sensitive to sex hormones. This means it may contribute to the sex bias in diagnosis, and it also may be a gene at the crux of gene-environment interactions that are sensitive to endocrine-disrupting compounds. Instead of listening to me talk about it, please watch for yourself. The entire thing is online at asfpodcast.org. So something else came up last week, and I'm so honored to have Mark Shen, postdoctoral fellow from UNC. Again, more UNC this week. They're quite the institution for autism research. Talk about his study that replicated a finding from a few years ago, which shows an increase in cerebrospinal fluid in infants who go on to later be diagnosed with autism more specifically those with severe symptoms. So not everyone in autism, but those who seem to be the most severely affected. Cerebrospinal fluid is basically water. Well, it's more complicated than that, but let's just call it water right now, that surrounds the brain and protects it against impact. It also helps out take out toxins since it flows through not just the outside of the brain, but the inside parts of the brain as well. First, he showed this effect in a group of kids with an older sibling with autism in California. Then he replicated it in the IBIS study out of the University of North Carolina. These findings come from the now ultra-productive research study that takes infants with an older sibling with autism who have a 15 times higher rate of autism diagnosis than the general population. These are called HR or high-risk and then looks at their autism symptoms, general behavior, and their brain development until they're about two years old. 
At this point, they become high-risk positive, which means they ended up with a diagnosis of autism, or high-risk negative, HR negative, which means they didn't have a diagnosis. They're compared to those that are LR or low risk. Before I let Mark take over, which I promise you I will, I wanted to reiterate how important this sort of research design is in understanding the early signs and symptoms of autism. Mark's theory is that the findings show faulty CSF flow as a possible mechanism. Okay, Mark, in your own words, what did you find in this larger sample of kids with autism? In the current study, we found that high-risk infants who later developed autism had about 18% more extraaxial fluid at six months of age. And this fluid continued to remain abnormally elevated all the way through 24 months of age. And this replicates the 2013 paper very consistently. In addition, there were several new discoveries we made in the current study beyond replication in a larger sample. First, because we had a large group of infants who developed autism, we could look for subgroups within the whole autism group. It turns out that infants who had the most severe autism symptoms when they were diagnosed at two had even more excessive CSF at six months of age, actually 24% more fluid, so even more fluid than the autism group as a whole. So it appears there is a so-called dose effect where the more CSF an infant had at six months, the more severe the autism symptoms were when the child was diagnosed at two years of age. Secondly, we found that more CSF was associated with poor motor skills as early as six months of age. And this is a time prior to the onset of behaviors that are usually diagnostic of autism. So it appears that extraaxial fluid is related to motor skills first, in the first year of life and then related to more social communication behaviors that are diagnostic of autism more downstream in the second year of life. How can the findings be used to help an earlier diagnosis? We found that the amount of extraaxial CSF at six months was predictive of autism diagnosis at two years of age. Now, the prediction accuracy was pretty modest, about 70% accuracy, which is not good enough to be clinically useful yet. But the fact that a single brain marker at six months had even modest predictability opens up the potential that perhaps combined with other biological markers or behavioral red flags, that we could really push the needle towards a collection of early markers that in combination would be clinically useful. For example, several researchers in IBIS, led by Heather Hazlett and Joe Piven, published a study last month in Nature that showed that rapid growth of the surface of the brain between six and 12 months predicted autism with about 80% accuracy. So what we are doing now is testing whether combining these early brain markers can improve the accuracy for predicting autism in infancy. We also have a wealth of other data on these infants related to their behavioral development, their genetics, and also environmental factors. Our hope is to combine all of these factors into a personalized medicine approach to predicting autism in infancy. We need to determine whether extraaxial fluid is specific to autism or whether it might be present in children with other conditions or who develop other concerns. We also don't know yet if extraaxial fluid is present in kids with autism who are at low familial risk 
So far, this finding is in high-risk children who develop autism. And finally, and most importantly, really, what do you want parents to know? I also want to be clear that we don't know yet if extraaxial fluid is a cause of autism. What the data shows now is that it's an early marker, a marker that signals increased risk for autism before symptoms appear years later. The fluid is observable with the naked eye on standard MRIs that would be found in any hospital. And that's really important because it really increases the real-world application of this marker. You don't need special tools or special software used by neuroscientists because the CSF is detectable with a standard MRI scan. And this potential biomarker at six months of age really raises the potential for early detection of autism in the first year of life prior to the onset of behavioral symptoms. This is critical because what has been shown very strongly is the earlier we can start behavioral interventions, the better the long-term outcomes are for the child. Because of this heterogeneity, we don't expect there's a single mechanism or a single cause that explains the cause of the condition for every child with autism. But we think that improper CSF flow could be one important mechanism for at least a subgroup of children with autism. Over the past decade, there has been new research that has shown that cerebrospinal fluid is very important for brain health. And our data suggests that in this large subgroup of kids with autism, this fluid is not flowing properly. So I understand why they were two years old when you finished studying them, but are you going to follow them any longer? We are hoping to continue following these children into school age which is a time that we know other developmental concerns and challenges beyond autism may start to arise. And we hope that the discoveries we are making in infancy can help inform us about developing better treatments, possibly educational supports that could be provided when the child is in school age. That could have lasting effects that would improve the lives of children with autism and their families over the long term. And I think that's really the best way to give back to families who have been so committed in supporting and participating in our research studies, as well as the studies of our colleagues in the field from around the world. Thanks, Mark. It was a real honor to include you in this podcast. And thank you for the listeners as well. For everybody out there, Mark is one of those young researchers who's going to make a difference in the lives of people with autism, and he's also very committed to helping families understand what science means. Thanks again to all of you, and talk to you next week.